Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we are looking at verses 1 through 4 this evening. Of course, each Wednesday night, Richard has been taking us through the book of Acts. And last Wednesday, he covered the portion of Scripture that we had just read, which was so fascinating. Just to consider, looking back at that passage, to, to consider the truths that are being given to us there of a people who had gathered for a specific feast who were converted together, and all of a sudden they began uh, sharing with one another, fellowshipping with one another, having joy in the Spirit, uh, immersing themselves in the apostles' teaching, and just how wonderful it is just to read that of, of they're there for a feast, they're converted, and all of a sudden they're united together, and they express that unity by breaking bread together and fellowshipping and all of that, sharing with one another. And just looking at that and, and considering that of, of how vital that that is to any church to have that kind of unity, that kind of devotion to one another. And so I thought tonight that we would look at uh, the subject of unity as it is, it is a vital part of any church is to be unified. A church is only as strong as its people and its people must be devoted to this very thing. You know, when you're looking at the New Testament epistles, and not only the New Testament epistles, but the Gospels express the very same thing, unity is, is at the heart of, of the Christian life of any church. Uh, just as a couple of examples, if you hold your place there in Philippians, in 1 Corinthians, and you can jot these down if you'd like. I can just run through them real quick. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, you have the apostle, who, <clears throat> the apostle who says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he goes on to express how he was told of uh, some factions that had arisen and all of that. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, the apostle says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. And of course, those are just a few examples. You have Jesus praying for the unity of his people in John 17. There are so many different places, especially within the New Testament, that express this, this truth, that command this, um, that a church should be unified. And I am very, very grateful, as we were talking about Sunday, uh, of how grateful that Jason and I are of, of our church and the love that we all share and the love that is growing within our church. But these are things as well that we must be on guard against so that we can continue that unity. And it just with Richard going over Acts chapter 2, it was something that was just so striking, so amazing to consider 
of a church that perhaps of people that didn't even know each other all of a sudden brought together and being devoted and loving one another and being devoted to the scripture. And, and it's like, how does that happen? How, how do you cultivate that? And that's where Philippians chapter 2 uh, comes in. This is probably one of the most uh, comprehensive uh, passages on this subject of unity within a church. And unity is something that we should strive for, to actively seek. Um, it's, it's necessary that all the people of God within the church should strive for this, to be unified to one another. And in doing so, by the way, uh, that also helps to guard us from uh, having uh, cliques, having uh, just certain ones that we associate with. If, if our goal is to be unified with all, then that love that we are to express will be expressed to everyone. And so that everyone will be uh, loved and encouraged and strengthened by one another. And everyone is looking out for the interest of one another, as we will find out here. This unity is not some... Uh, superficial kind of a unity. It's not a sentimental kind of a unity. This is unity that is grounded within the Word of God. As we saw in Acts chapter 2, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and that's the basis of their unity. They're grounded in the Word of God and their shared affections for Christ. Their unity was vital to the strength of their church as they faced adversity. Now you think of this. Think of how vital that this was for the ones being mentioned in Acts 2. That kind of unity with the adversity that they would soon experience. Now, when you think back to Acts chapter 2 and you're seeing how people are selling their, their lands and selling their possessions and they're, they're sharing with one another and, and all of this, it's like, why are they doing that? What was the purpose of them doing that? Well, on the surface, one particular purpose is, is because Jesus said he's going to judge Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's going to be laid waste. It's going to be left desolate, as Jesus said. And so upon hearing these very things, it's no wonder that they're selling their possessions and they're selling their properties. This is getting ready to be laid waste, as Jesus said. And so then you have them selling their properties. You have them sharing with one another. Others perhaps are taking them in and, and housing them. Because in a few short years, um, actually not long after, as you begin to read through the book of Acts, they experienced such great persecutions by the Jewish people themselves. And then later it's going to be by the Romans. So unity is vital to the strength of a church as you face adversity just as they did. And again, unity is what Christ has, has prayed for. And if Christ prayed for the unity among his people, then just think about how important that is. That in anything that Christ could have said to the Father, in John 17, he says that they may be one, even as we are one. Think of how important that that is. So we're looking at Philippians 2 tonight, and we're looking at what is the essence of unity? How do we experience it? What is needed to have it? How do you cultivate it? And that's where Paul gives us the, the answers to these, these questions here in Philippians 2. 
We're looking at verses 1 through 4, though it will be mentioned, of course, the verses thereafter. But if you would and you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that, that our hearts will be encouraged by your word, that the Spirit of God would promote in us these qualities here even more so, that we never let our guards down, that we never stop, stop pursuing the unity of the church, that we may glorify you in all things by being united together. We pray that, that Father, uh, that the Spirit of God would give us understanding and that he would bring about great joy in one another as we seek to serve one another. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word, may it accomplish all you desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Chapter 2 begins with the word, therefore, which is giving us an understanding that he is bringing a thought here. He is bringing a conclusion or a, a result of what has previously been said. And when you look back into chapter 1, especially beginning in verse 27, the apostle says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is the main heading. This is the main thrust of what Paul is desiring. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I remain absent. This is what Paul desires to hear of them, that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. His desire, I want to hear that you're standing firm together. I want to hear that you were striving together for the gospel. So he elaborates further in chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, which is the continuing thought of verse 27. He says, therefore, and he asks these series of questions, and interestingly, verses 1 through 4 is one long continuous sentence, so it's really a unit in and of itself, of course. But he begins to ask these questions. And it starts out with the word if, and it could almost put some doubt in us if there is really of any of this, if there is really, really of, of that, but it could actually be translated since or because. These are 
statements of affirmation. These things are true. It's almost as if he's having a conversation and he's saying, is there any of this? And they would answer, of course, yes. So these are somewhat rhetorical. He's anticipating a positive answer here. <clears throat> but what is he recounting to them in the first verse here? That the unity that he is desirous of them is, is grounded in the blessings that they have received individually. What does he say? Because these are blessings that come to us in Christ because of Christ through the Spirit of God. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any of Christ coming alongside of us, that encouragement, uplifting us, helping us, it's a very similar word as, as the Spirit is named in, in the Gospel of John as the paraclete. He is the helper. He is the one who comes alongside. If there is any encouragement in Christ, or rather since there is encouragement in Christ, is the idea. Because there is encouragement in Christ... If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and you think about these things that he is speaking of that come from God. These are blessings that come from God to you. This is what you've, you have experienced. Because there is consolation of love. Because there is fellowship in the Spirit. Because there is that tenderness that Christ gives and the mercies that Christ gives to his people, the things that you have experienced yourself. He's recounting back to them. You have received these blessings, have you not? And the answer, of course, for them is, yes, we have. Christ has come alongside us in our, in our difficult times. He has strengthened our hearts by his word. He has shown us great love, not only with viewing the, the cross and everything that he has accomplished but the great love that through the Spirit of God comforts our hearts in such a way that we are reminded of God's love, that His love is affecting in us by the Spirit of God, that we are communing with the Spirit as we pray and as we study the Scripture, and the Spirit brings out those great joys within our hearts and sometimes brings about sorrow as we recognize our shortcomings and our failures. But we experience then the tenderness of God and the mercies of God. Have you received these is the idea. William Hendrickson, he writes it this way. <clears throat> he says, quote, If then you receive any help or encouragement or comfort from your vital union with Christ, and if the love of Christ towards you does at all provide you with an incentive for action, if you are at all rejoicing in the marvelous spirit fellowship and if you have any experience of the tender mercy and compassion of Christ, then prove your gratitude for all this by loving your brothers and sisters at home. Now, this does kind of hit as to why it is that Paul is writing this. You have the Philippian church that there are many things that he commends them for. You have the book itself, which is the book of joy. But in chapter 4, we do read this, beginning in verse 4. Now think of the things that he's commending them for, but at the heart of it is this problem in the church. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Think of those wonderful words that he just said. This is commending them for who they are. They have a lot of things going on that are right and good. This probably isn't even a, a doctrinal issue. 
that is going on here. But in verse 2, I urge, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, why does he all of a sudden say that? Because most likely what has happened and the reason for his writing and the reason why he is stressing the importance of unity and being of the same mind and maintaining the same love is because with these two women right here, there is disharmony. There is a great uh, argument perhaps that have, has went on, some kind of a disagreement, something that has severed the unity that these two ladies had had. And when that happens within the church and you have two that are arguing, usually what happens, especially out in the, out, out in the world there, is you have people jumping on one side or the other. Well, they're right, you're wrong. Well, no, 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 no. They're right, you're wrong. And so what does that then breed within a church? But greater, uh, greater distrust, greater disagreement, greater factions, disunity. And so perhaps what is going on between these two ladies is the reason why he's writing this. And this could be something uh, maybe started out very small. Maybe they just got on each other's nerves. Maybe they just had a disagreement over something who knows what it was? Well, I think that should be that color. No, it should be this color over here. Who knows what was happening? But whatever was happening was enough to cause a great concern for the Apostle Paul to where he is writing this, and the main thrust of the book is be unified. Even as small things can start out as being fairly insignificant, but then bloom into something greater than what it was intended to be. And again, we're not talking about doctrinal issues, but more likely <clears throat> this could be preferences. This could be a variety of things. Here's what Dr. MacArthur says. He says, Paul's concern here is not about doctrines, ideas, <clears throat> or practices that are clearly unbiblical. It is about interpretations, standards, interests, preferences, and the like that are largely matters of personal choice, such issues should never be allowed to foment controversy within the body of Christ. To insist on one's own way in such things is sinful because it, is, because it senselessly divides believers. It reflects a prideful desire to promote one's personal views, style, or agenda. Believers must never, of course, compromise doctrines or principles that are clearly biblical, but to humbly defer to one another on secondary issues is a mark of spiritual strength, not weakness. It is a mark of maturity and love that God highly honors because it promotes and preserves harmony in His church. So this could be something small. But then it's now something big. Something that is causing strife within the church. And especially if you think about what Paul is saying there at the beginning, I want to hear that you're standing firm and not alarmed by your opponents because if, they're, if you're not standing firm, you will be alarmed by your opponents. You will have severe problems when you are not united. I mean, you think about, you think about the Jewish war with Rome. One of the things that led to the downfall besides being a judgment of Christ, was the factions that began to arise within Jerusalem itself. You had a great store of food that these, 
these uh, various factions had, but in order to get at one another, they would burn each other's food. And then you don't have anything. And Josephus had recorded that there was probably close to a million people in Jerusalem when the Romans sacked the city and killed most everyone. And they were starving to death. They were committing cannibalism. Why? Because they couldn't get along. They were fighting with each other. And they end up burning each other's food. Burning each other's supply. How are you going to stand against an enemy if you can't stand together? And so when you think about what Paul's saying here to this church, how are you going to stand against an enemy if you can't stand together? So this is perhaps exactly what he is referring to as to why he's writing these things. And it's almost as if you have those two ladies right there and then those that are supporting them and he's asking these questions. Is there consolation in Christ? Yes. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. Any fellowship with the Spirit? Any tenderness and mercies of God? Yes. And he's building a foundation in order to build his case. One writer had put it this way. He says, it's almost as if you're talking to your child. Did I buy your, did, did I buy your clothes? Yes. Did I wash your clothes? Yes. Did I dry your clothes? Yes. Then surely you can fold them and put them up. And that's basically what Paul's doing here. Building his case by asking these questions. And, and it, is, it is very conversational there. Is there encouragement? And the answer is yes, and it goes on. Paul is, is reminding them of these great blessings that they have received in Christ. So, so if, we, if we have disagreements with others, what is the, one of the first things that comes up is our pride. Our pride gets the best of us at times, and we're like, I'm not giving in, not going to do it. But what happens then if you have a brother or sister that comes to you and says, you remember what Christ has done for you? Do you remember the sins that he bore for you? Do you remember the great love that he still grants to you? Even in spite of how you're acting right now? And what does that do? It ends up melting the heart. That ends up bringing down the arrogance and the pride so that I can hear what the reality of things are. That's how it works, is it not? We allow that, that uh, as we've been talking about in Romans, we allow the rudiments of the old man to get a hold of us at times to where we forget who we're supposed to be in Christ because we're too focused on winning the argument. Or we're too focused on having our way. But then you hear those words. Do you remember what Christ did? And then it's like. Why'd you have to say that? I was doing so well. But what does it do though? It melts your heart. It brings you down. It helps you to think more sensibly. And so that's what Paul's doing. These are things that you have received in Christ. These blessings that each of you as individuals, as he's speaking to the Philippian church, this is what you have received. And in light of that, 
he says, since you have received these, since these are true in your life, and that, and that Christ has comforted your hearts. Each one of us here can look back at times in our life and, and consider how Christ had comforted us through, during some very difficult portions of our lives. How the Spirit of God has lifted our countenance up. How He has given us peace. How He has given us joy. How He has reminded us of God's tender mercies. Even in light of our failures. I mean, think of that. And so what then does He say? He's going to emphasize unity. Be unified. What is the nature of this unity? Now, this is very interesting here. And it's interesting not just because Paul's saying it, but because he is saying it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which then gives us an even greater understanding of how God feels about this. He says, make my joy complete by doing this. If the Apostle Paul is saying to the people at Philippi, make my joy complete by being unified, then what then does that imply? He's saying, perhaps, or the Lord is saying, rather, make my joy complete by being unified. The nature of this unity is seen in the oneness of the people. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And what is he really saying? I mean, simplifying it down. What is he saying? Be like-minded. Be one. This is having the same attitude toward the Lord, toward the fellow members of the church. It's having the same goals of wanting to see the kingdom of Christ grow. It's having the same values. The same goals of success. It's maintaining the same love. The love that you have received of Christ is the same love that you're granting to one another. And this is that agape love. That's a selfless act of the will love. And this is very important too because naturally this is going to happen. Is when you have a church full of different people from various walks of life. From... Uh, different ways of, of how we were all you know, reared up. I mean, you're going to have differences of personalities. You're going to have differences of, of how to go about things. It's like, well, we need to do this. Well, I would do it this way. Well, I would do it this way. Okay, well, can we, we'll come together and we'll look at this thing together. But we have different ideas of how to get something done. We have, again, different personalities. Some personalities jive well or, uh, better with others and and. You know, that, that ends up happening that way. But if we were to maintain, especially this, to maintain the same love and that agape love, that act of the will love, then that kind of a love is a love that is expressed to all. And it is to be expressed to all, regardless if we, if we have the same kind of personalities that agree well or they don't. We're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the local body. We're part of, of something greater than ourselves, which is the universal church of Christ that is expressed in the local church. 
we gravitate towards others, uh, some more than others, rather. But the goal of the church is to be unified. And when you are unified, you are sh- you're showing and demonstrating that same love towards one another that I don't want to just express what, what I've been reading and studying and the joy of whatever it is that I've been going over with these particular ones over here. But I want to share it with these over here too because that promotes in each one of us a greater desire to, to study and to, to see, well, that's amazing what they were going over there. And I want to study this. I want to study that. And then we, we're, we're promoting that in one another by showing love to one another, by giving each other attention, by giving each other uh, encouragement. It is, it is a, a great disservice when, to, to any of the people of God when you have cliques because you're only showing favor to some and not others. And others feel alone. They st- and it's, you know, it's never a good thing to feel alone within the church that is supposed to be a church family. If we are brothers and sisters in Christ, then we demonstrate that love of being brothers and sisters in Christ to each other. All of us. Not just some. But to all. And if we do so, and we are trying to be like-minded, united in the Spirit, and we have the same intention as far as furthering the kingdom of God then that that builds unity. We're reminded of all the blessings that we have received. I received them, you received them, and we're grounded in the Scripture together. That's the basis of our unity and the Spirit of God that has bonded us all together from all walks of life. And then we are promoting that love towards one another and that like-mindedness, having the same attitude. And that is something that he is expressing there in verse 2 is really uh, uh, having this particular attitude that everyone's goal is to be unified in the church. That's the attitude that we need to have, and the attitude and the joy of showing love to one another. This is the nature of of being unified. It begins in the mind. It begins with an attitude. And then the expression of that is from a heart of humility. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You cannot have selfishness within any church or self-centeredness within the church. That selfishness of, of always seeking to, uh, to have a personal advantage, even at the expense of others, of promoting yourself. Or empty conceit, believing yourself to be uh, superior to others. Because if you, if you have those kinds of attitudes in yourself, you're not going to show love to one another. You're not going to be like-minded because you're always going to be in disagreement. Well, I think things ought to be this way, so I'm not even listening to what you have to say. So what does the apostle say there? with expressing that kind of unity that is needed in the church, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. The the apostle also says elsewhere, let not a man regard himself as something when he is nothing. 
For if he thinks himself to be something, he deceives himself. This is self-deception here. Having this empty conceit. But he says, with humility of mind or with lowliness of mind, regard one another, have the opinion of one another, view one another as more important than yourselves. View one another as more superior than yourself and the interest of them more so than yourself. That is a supernatural act. That is not something that comes natural. And, you know, um, a lot of the commentators were speaking about humility and, and how it was viewed by the pagans, especially as uh, not at all something to, uh, to seek after. It wasn't at all a virtue. It was, it was seen, seen uh, as, as something of a slave. A slave would be uh, in that kind of a, an attitude of mind. Uh, unfit, base, of no account. Uh, not at all a virtue that a person is to seek after. But that's exactly what Paul is telling us to seek after. That's what he's telling the church at Philippi to seek after. Because if you have disagreements with these two particular ones, or maybe they have some on either side... Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't view yourself as being more superior than this one. Don't view yourself as more superior than her. Regard one another as more important. Humility is indeed a great virtue within the Christian faith because Christ, Christ humbled himself. And that's the example. That's the standard. We are definitely not better than him. Greater than him. And if the greatest among all can humble himself, then we can too. For we are following in his footsteps. So with lowliness of mind, he says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Look to others as more important, more superior, of greater value. This isn't to disregard anything about yourself, by the way. This isn't to disregard any of your own ideas or your own views or any of that. But if you come to a situation in which you have differing ideas or whatever that could, um, that could cause a greater disagreement or arguments... If it isn't that important, then don't make it a big thing. Don't, don't allow the pride that comes up in our hearts to make it into something that it was never meant to be. But show love to the other and more value to the other and say, okay. Let's try it. You know, Todd Friel, it was a G3 conference a few years back. And this was actually in the context of marriage. He said, and uh, I want to say it was more of a, uh, maybe it was a men's uh, breakout session or something like that because he's speaking the majority of us to men, I think. I can't remember exactly. Anyway, 
That's not important. Here's what is important. <laughs> the important part is, is that he says to all who are in the room, you who are married, if you regard yourself as the chief of sinners in your home, then when you feel like your spouse has wronged you or that your children have wronged you, first, be sure that they have wronged you and that it isn't just a preference on your part. I would have done it a different way. Make sure that they've actually wronged you. And then when that one question begins to come out of your mouth, when you say, I can't believe that they would have done that or that she would have done that or that he would have done that, you need to think back to yourself and say, I know why that they would have done that or she would have done that or he would have done that because we're sinners. And if I'm the chief of sinners in my home, then I'm going to be much more gracious to them if I believe that they've wronged me because I'm a greater sinner than them. And if you regard yourself in that kind of a way, even not only within the context of, of a marriage, but in the church, then just think of, 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 of the unity that can, the, the, the stronger unity, when we can let go of our pride and we can say, I feel like they've wronged me, but I'm a greater sinner than them. We can work this out. We can work through it. And let's continue again. And it's regarding one another is more important. It's much more important, the unity of the church, than any one of us getting our own way or raising up barriers because we feel like we've been wronged. I remember... Um, and think of the importance of that. That's, that's the thing. The importance of striving together and trying to make things right between one another. <clears throat> I remember one time, I hope we don't kill me, but my son and I had a great disagreement on a Saturday night. And it was a pretty good disagreement. And I remember the next morning I got up. I got up early, as I always do on Sundays, and you go over everything. And, and you have a, a time of prayer as well. You read some scripture and you pray. And so, as I've shared with some of you, I, I pray through books. And so I just happened to be in Matthew the second time around. And I was in Matthew 5. And the passage of scripture that I was reading that day for my reading was, If you have an ought with your brother, leave your gift at the altar, Go make it right, and then come back and offer your gift to the Lord. And I'm reading this, and I'm still angry, as he's still angry. And then you think to yourself, <clears throat> yes, Lord, I understand. And so then you finish up, and then I went in there, and I woke him up, and I said, I know we have things to still work through, but... Let's make sure that we go and we honor the Lord together today. And it was just one of those great rebukes that come. Drop your pride. Stop trying to be right. And go make things right with your son. And that's how it is within the church, is it not? 
drop your pride and go make things right and regard someone else as more important than yourself. So that expression of humility is vital to the unity of a church. And it results in this. Look at at verse 4 here. When we're walking in humility, regarding one another is more important than ourselves, then he's... Then he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. That humility of mine works itself out as well, expresses itself in being a help to others. Not just looking out for number one. I I can't stand that saying. I'm looking out for number one. Well, that has nothing to do with being a Christian. I'm an island unto myself. Nope, you're not a Buddhist. You're supposed to be a Christian. But that's the way we we function. It is, especially, I think, within the American church. We think that our relationship is just me and Jesus, and it is. By all means, it is. You have an individual relationship with you and Jesus. But again, you're part of something greater than yourself, which is the body of Christ. You've been made to be a body of Christ, the body of Christ. And in doing so, we don't just look out for our own interests. We're looking out for the interest of others. This is the opposite of being self-centered. We're looking out for their interests, their advantages, their well-being, their prosperity, their gain, rather than just looking out for our own. Again, our goal is not to just promote ourselves, thinking of ourselves as more superior, any of that, but it is to promote the well-being of others. And being a help to them. This isn't just talking about spiritual things in the sense of, you know, um, if you have a question on doctrine or whatever, you know, I want to be here to help. But I also want to know, how are you doing? What's going on? Are you okay? Do you need something? That's, that's, That's what's in view here. You know, being an encouragement to one another is being just as Christ is to us. It's coming alongside someone. It's not just saying, be warm, be filled, be merry, and go on about your business. But it's saying, how can I be of a help to you? It's the giving of yourself on behalf of another. Do you have to sacrifice time to do it? Yeah, you do. We're very stingy with our time. And I, I, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. I'm stingy with my time, even, even at work. As soon as I sit down and someone's like, I need this, and I'm like, mm-hmm. you couldn't wait five more minutes. But okay. We're stingy with our time. But we only have so much time. So much time to try to make an impact in the life of another before the Lord calls us home. Because we don't know how long we have. And that's why the scripture tells us to redeem the, the, the time. Because the days are evil. Right? So the giving of our time is necessary. Of being a church family. Of loving one another as we should. It isn't, it isn't that... I want to know how you're doing, and 
only have those conversations with you on Sundays or Wednesdays. And then the rest of the week, well, you're just on your own. I hope you have good prayer life because I'm busy. That's not how we're to be. It is to be, if you need me, you let me know that you need me. If I need you, I'm going to let you know that I need you. If I'm having difficulty in my life, I need to let someone know. So one, even if they don't have an answer for me, if it is a spiritual matter, if it is a struggle or a trial, I can at least let someone know that they're praying for me. That they're going to check on me. If I'm having a struggle in my life, another spiritual matter perhaps, I'm going to let somebody know that they can be praying for me and hold me accountable to whatever it is. If, if something were to come up and I can't pay a bill or I have some shortage of food that's going on or whatever, I need to let someone know. And you need to let someone know if that's what's going on. You remember what they did in the book of Acts? They had all things in common. They were sharing with one another as anyone had need. And that is also what it is to be a church family of loving one another and loving all and giving the same treatment to all. Intent on one purpose and the intent that we should all have is to promote godliness within one another. Cultivate a greater understanding of, of who God is amongst each other that we grow together. That is being a unified church coming alongside one another, helping one another. This is a journey that we're all in together. Well, we say things like, well, I don't want to be a burden to anyone. The scripture tells us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, they're busy. They're not busy enough to ignore their brothers and sisters in Christ when they're in need. Well, I don't really want to tell people my problems. And while that is a helpful thing at times so that people can hold you accountable, maybe sometimes it's just a matter of saying, hey, I got something I'm struggling with. I need you to pray for me. Absolutely. And then I'm going to check on you. When we look out for the interest of others, the personal interest of others, we are bearing one another's burdens, so fulfilling the law of Christ. We are expressing that agape love toward one another and that we are seeking to, to promote godliness within one another. And when we promote godliness in one another and the ground of that godliness is the scripture, then we are, are being unified in the spirit together. And the unity that we are grounding ourselves in is indeed the word of God. So it all fits together. Blessings you have received from the Lord, so drop your pride. That's the first thing he says. Have this kind of an attitude in you. That you're seeking for the well-being of others and the unity of the church. Express that by walking in humility Show that by being a help to others. So then the question comes about, these are wonderful things to talk about. These are, these are great things, Paul, that you're saying. 
But again, how do we, how do we cultivate that? We know we need to be this way. He started off by reminding us of the blessings that we have received. But how do we do this? Now, this is a sermon in and of itself, but I'm just going to read it. Here's how you do it. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do you do it? Have the same attitude in you, which you have the mind of Christ by the Spirit of God. Have this same attitude in yourselves, which was in Him. You have Christ who is equal with the Father. In, in the very essence of who He is, His being is equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit of God. And what does He do? It says He emptied Himself. He laid aside, not His divinity, can't stop being God, but He laid aside His divine prerogatives, if you will, and he takes the form, not of the king over the earth, he takes the form of a servant. A servant who is at the will of another. He becomes obedient to another. This is the great king. The one who speaks creation into existence, the one who upholds it by the word of his power. The one who can annihilate any of his enemies just this is the one who has all power and authority over everything in creation, the entire universe. And what does he do? He takes the form of a servant. He didn't come to earth as a great king and showing everyone how much of a great king he is. But he subjected himself to the will of another. The father. And he becomes obedient not only to go to the cross in obedience, but obedient in everything that he did throughout his entire life, throughout his entire ministry, obedient to another. And if Christ, the one whom we claim that we love and the one whom we claim that we serve, the, great, the one who we have great affection for, if he does this, then yes, we can do this. And we should want to do that because by Him doing so, He not only showed us who God is really and personally so that we can understand with our finite minds something about the very character of God, but because He did, that means our redemption, our salvation, because He chose to humble Himself. This is what our King did. This is what our Lord did. We're not better than Him. We're not more superior than Him. We can't say, well, they don't deserve for me to be that way because we didn't deserve for Him to be that way. 
And so when we begin to think of these things, that's what helps to drop our pride as we recognize who we are in light of him. We're no one. So that's what the apostle is saying. This is how you do it. These are the things that, that we need to be seeking after. This is how a church should function. This is how a church should be brought together in unity. And this is what is needed for unity. And remember Christ your Lord. <clears throat> Martin Lloyd-Jones. <clears throat> Here's what he says about living out the Christian life by being humble. Lloyd-Jones says, A friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him, and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. I said, I have no method or technique I can't tell you how to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him. You realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. How do you do it? You look at him. You behold his face. And that's what brings you down. Unity, the kind of unity that we see in Acts 2, it's, it's, a, fascinating, it's a fascinating reality of how it all happened. But that is the kind of unity that, that the people of God are to have in all ages. That kind of love, that kind of devotion that kind of looking out for one another. That is what I praise God that we, that we have, that we need more of, that we need to grow in. And how do we do it? We behold the face of our king. We regard one another as more important than ourselves. We don't look after our own interest, but the interest of others. We prefer one another. And so I pray that we continue to do so and, and that this is... Uh, this kind of humility and this kind of unity, all of that is cultivated within our local body and promoted by each other. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you so much, Father, that, that we have the great example of how we ought to be and we have the ability to carry it out by the Spirit of God who raises our eyes to view our Lord and our Savior, our great King with eyes of faith, that we behold His glory. And then in beholding His glory, we are brought low. We are reminded of who we are. He is the greatest. We are nothing in comparison to Him. And so we, we pray, Father, that, that You would help us daily to carry out what we find in Your Word of loving one another in this way, of being unified in this way. We still have difficulties with the rudiments of the old man. We still have pride to contend with. Father, help us to remove, remove this pride. Uh, let us be selfless to one another, loving to one another, and to continue to be a church family 
that all of our brothers and sisters in Christ are loved and cared for and that none are left out. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for what you've done already. Uh, Keep us close. Increase our fear of you. Increase our love for you, our devotion to you, our adoration of you, that you are always the basis of, of any unity that we seek with one another, that we never sacrifice truth on the altar of peace. Our truth is always grounded in you. We love you. We give you all the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.